Scripture reading this morning will be in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. It reads, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, uh, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in, new, in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might not be brought to nothing, so that we could, would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with, with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has don, uh, dominion over him. For to death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm always very happy to be with you today, and I'm very grateful for your presence this morning. I encourage you to be back with us this evening when we will be talking about one of my favorite subjects, the promise of the second coming of Christ. And it's always a privilege for me to talk about wonderful subjects like that and to talk about it from the standpoint of the greatest book in the world, and that's our Bible. Thank you, Tim, for reading our scriptures. Good to see Tim again, and it's always uh, encouraging to see these younger ones come back and be with us when they have the opportunity and we're happy that Tim is with us as these uh, that have been with us come back from time to time. Out in the foyer you're going to see a brochure about our spiritual, I mean our um, Searching the Scriptures lectureship. Uh, it's a spiritual time indeed of studying the Bible, the Word of God, and more will be said about this. And when the announcements are made, please take note carefully of the announcements. Uh, I see here on my brochure it has uh, Monday, September the t 10th, 7 p.m. The reason mine says 7 p.m. is because I pinned it in there myself. Um, uh, that's an oversight on my part, I'm sure. We didn't get the time on that, and that's probably my mistake because I just proofread it two or three times and still happened to miss that point. The cards do have the time. 7 p.m. So please take note of that, that we will be meeting each evening at 7 p.m., even though the brochure doesn't have it. Still, that's the accepted time, and we're used to coming at 7 p.m. on that occasion. Tell others about it, and I look forward to, uh, to that opportunity that we have to be together and study God's Word in this wonderful fashion. The uh, forum sort of marks a high point in the year for me. I feel, I don't know why it's this way, but once the forum is here, 
then after the form, the rest of the year just flies by. I don't know why, but that, the rest of the year really slides by quickly after the form. Form seems seemed like it finally gets here, finally gets here. I keep anticipating it. But now that it's here and it's over, uh, the rest of the year's gone too, just about. But uh, these years do fly away, don't they? Uh, I have a question for you this morning. It's not an original question with me. It's an unusual question. And I want to emphasize it and illustrate it as best I possibly can. Here's my question. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, there are some people who might think, well, that's an unusual question. Some people refuse the grace of God. For example, in Romans chapter 2, you have there in verse 4, they take advantage of the grace of God. Some translations use here goodness or kindness for grace. Some people refuse it. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And some people will refuse the grace of God, failing to understand that the whole purpose behind it his forbearance and kindness is to lead us to be to having a more godly life. Some people will never use the word grace, and it is never sensed in their life, nor does it moisten their lips. Though the word is used 131 times in the NIV, 170 times in the King James Version, 144 times in the American Standard Version. It certainly underscores what Paul said about grace in Ephesians 2. We're saved by grace and uh, not by works, and telling us how important grace really is. Some people never even mention it or think about it, the grace of God. There are some people who lose the grace of God. They'll be obedient to the gospel of Christ, and then they'll turn around and become unfaithful to the gospel of Christ. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4, there Paul talked about the fact that they were severed from Christ because they were trying to live outside the law of God, and the law of Christ. And then there are some people who will abuse the grace of Christ, as in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. There is a contrast between Adam and what he did in abusing the grace of God, and then Christ and what he did in bringing us the grace of God. Adam was weak, and therefore partook of that forbidden fruit. And as he did, abused the blessings that God had given him. So now I'm going to ask my question again. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Let me ask it in another way, and I'm going to ask the question again. This was Paul's statement in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. You'll probably recognize it. But you see, I'm trying to understand it the very best way I can because I don't want to abuse grace. And I don't want to lose grace. And I, don't want, I want to do my best not to disgrace grace. Let me ask it this way. Shall we continue to entertain ungodly thoughts in our heart and our mind and ignore the grace of God? Shall we continue to use wicked words we should not use, even though God is a God of grace? Shall we continue to take in pictures which we should not see, even though God is a God of grace? Shall we talk disparagingly about others? And continue to do so? Or shall we continue to listen about disparaging talk about others, 
even though God is a God of grace? Shall we continue just to worship any way we please? Shall we continue to worship just however we decide to worship, even though God is a God of grace? Shall we continue to ignore relationships that are unlawful, even though God is a God of grace? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, Paul's answer to that is very typical. It's typical of the way he answers questions. It's bold, it's direct, and it's emphatic. Absolutely not. The way Paul said it, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin continue any longer therein? And what he's talking about there is that we've repented from sin. And we no longer live a life of sin. We've turned away from that. We don't love it. We don't practice it. We are separated from it. We are dead from sin. But if I'm not careful, I'll let those things come back into my life and into my heart. And I'll end up doing the very thing that I don't want to do. Disgrace the grace of God. To keep that from happening, I got three points I want to accomplish today. The first thing I want to accomplish, I want to look at a scripture. And it's very important that I understand Romans chapter 6, and I've just picked out part of it, verses 1 through 11. And I'll analyze verses 1 through 11 briefly. And when I do that, then I want to notice two words that keep coming up in that selection. One word is crucifixion. It talks about the crucifixion of Christ, and it talks about my crucifixion. The other word's resurrection. It talks about the resurrection of Christ, and it talks about, in a comparative sense, the resurrection of myself. And when I understand the Scripture, and I understand the crucifixion, and I understand the resurrection, then I will not be disgracing grace which is want what I definitely want to do. First of all, the Scripture. With your Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 6, which was read for us this morning. And often, as is the case, and I appreciate so much this congregation listening so attentively, standing before the reading of the Scripture, which certainly is emblematic of our respect and regard for the Word of God, but we need to understand what we're reading. And when we look at this particular passage, it's very important to understand it. If I'm going to try not to disgrace grace. And that's where I'm at. I want to try not to disgrace it. Paul anticipates an objection. The first objection in writing these chapters, which he has, chapter 4, chapter 5, about justification. He anticipates in very rabbinic fashion, writes like a rabbi, some objection that someone might come up with. And the objection that he has in mind is, well, if this is the case, Paul, why can't we just keep on sinning to receive more grace? Now, here's the argument. If grace comes as a result of sin, why can't we keep on sinning to receive more grace? And the answer which Paul gives, of course, is very emphatic in the matter, absolutely not. We can't do that. That misses the point altogether. He's writing to a people who want to keep the Mosaic law in, per, in perpetuity. That is to say, from now on. 
They wanted to keep the old law. They wanted the old law of Moses to be in effect from now on, on and on and on, in perpetuity. And uh, Paul is making the point that we've been justified by an obedient faith, especially when it comes to the matter in chapter 4 and chapter 5 and the life of Abraham and that kind of thing. In verse 2, by no means, he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? I see you can live in a state of sin. How can you continue to live in it when you have died from it? Death, dying, means to be separated from. We're now separated from sin. How can you continue to live in sin when you have been separated from it and you've given it up? And this is the essence of repentance. Romans 6 and verse 2. How can we continue in this? We've got to give it up. We've got to separate ourselves from it. We no longer are living a life of sin. So he anticipates the objection. It's a good way to write when you're actually setting forth a position. What objection might be coming your way? And he anticipates this Jewish objection. He says, absolutely not. We cannot continue to live in a state of sin. We have been separated from that. How could we stand to do that anyway? Since we have given up our love of it and no longer practice it daily on a daily basis. And then he gives us a point about transition. And he says the point of real transition from being outside of Christ to being in Christ is the point of being baptized into Christ. So when I'm baptized into Christ, it's a matter of a transition point. Now, it's not the only element with regard to the plan of salvation, but it is an important element, and it is important for this reason. It is at this point in time, this transition point, however you use, want to use that word, that I'm out of Christ, but now because I was baptized, at that point, I'm in Christ. And he talks about this from verse 3 on down through verse 11. Let's follow the argumentation. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 3, notice the first word there. Uh, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized in his, into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism. I guess the first word that I had in mind is the word we there in verse 4. We includes himself. I was baptized. He's baptized in water. Acts chapter 8. Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins. Acts 22 and verse 16. Paul includes himself in the category of those who have been baptized. We. We've been baptized. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism. And he uses two great words here in this particular verse. Verse 4. Buried and raised. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So he used the word burial and raised. Obviously, the baptism that he has reference to is an immersion, a burial and a resurrection, to be buried in water and to come up out of the water. He said, that's the way I did it. That's the way we did it. We were buried. And we were raised. The burial that Jesus went through, of course, was a physical type of burial. The resurrection that Jesus went through, of course, was a physical type of resurrection, whereby his body was brought back from the dead. Now, notice in this particular instance that there are some people who think, well, I've already been saved before this. My baptism is just a manifestation of my already being saved. 
And sometimes it comes out something like this, an, an outward sign of an inward grace or an outward sign of conversion. But the fact remains that he's making clear that before we were baptized, we were out of Christ. After we were baptized, we were now in this in Christ relationship. And the point of transition is when I was baptized into Christ. He said, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I'm still in verse 4. There are a couple of points there in verse 4 that I need to remember. One, newness of life and what that means. And two, it's to the glory of God. Now, to notice what newness of life means, just skip on down there to verse 18. And having been set free from sin, we became slaves of righteousness. Newness of life means being set free from sin, verse 18. Being set free from sin, verse 18, means newness of life, verse 4. But it's all to the glory of God, verse 4. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so now I have a new life that I can live. I have a new life that I can live because of that transition step of being baptized into Christ. But notice in this guard, this is how we receive the benefits of the death of Jesus. I'm baptized, buried, and I'm raised. The result of that, verse 5, I'm now in newness of life with Christ. A new word's been added to our discussion, verse 5. The word is united. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, Jesus died. He was separated. His physical life was separated from his body. But I went through a death whereby I am now separated from the love of and the practice of sin. That's verse 2. And repentance. Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of God and thus received this life once again. I am raised up from the waters of baptism to live a new life. I am now a new creation. So as Jesus had new life, so I have new life as I live for him day by day, continually in this particular matter. I'm united. Great words used in verse 7. The word, though, may not appear in your English text. Some translations have the word justified. Some translations simply use set free. This English Standard Version has set free in my translation. But the original word goes back to the word justified. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And that's certainly what justified means. I've been made right. I'm now set free from sin. Great words are being used. I have newness of life. I've been buried. I've been raised. I'm set free. I'm justified. Now before God, though my sins have been uh, uh, terrible sins in the sight of God, they have been washed away, and now I'm no longer accountable to them. Now, verse 9 ought to be considered very carefully. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Y'all don't understand that. Jesus does not go through this death over and over and over again, no matter what liturgical formula one might use. Jesus does not die over and over again. Jesus died one time. He says, we'll never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. 
For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Jesus died one time. And this one-time death of Jesus was efficacious and sufficient for me and for all who will come in obedient faith to him. He does not die over and over again. And then verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. I need to understand what that means, verse 11. I must consider myself dead to sin, separated from sin. I no longer love it. I no longer practice it. Now I'm separated from it. How do I do that? By consistently living the Christian life every day, subsequent to my transition point, my baptism into Christ. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ, to God, in Christ Jesus. When I study carefully Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, I saw some words that kept coming up over and over again in this particular passage. And as I've already alluded, one of those words that comes up is crucifixion. And another word that comes up is resurrection. So now, in order to try not to disgrace grace, what I know about Romans 6, I now can ask myself this question about crucifixion. Did I really die to my old way of living? Did I really separate myself from the old lifestyle that tends to lead me away from Christ and out of the kingdom of, of God Almighty? And the contrast in this discussion about crucifixion in our chapter today really talks about the crucifixion of Jesus. And the point that Paul is making in his wonderful way, I wish I could do it like he does, and I just can't do it. I try my best. I work at it all the time is to make the application in a comparative type of way. How does that compare to me? And what's the takeaway for me when I understand this matter about trying not to abuse the grace of God? And it's found for us in verse 6. The old man was crucified. That is, my old way of life was put to death. Now... I suppose that crucifixion doesn't mean as much to us as it did to them. When he used that word crucified and crucifixion, that was a powerful word. Powerful word. To us, we don't relate to crucified. We don't relate to crucifixion. We have never seen one. Hopefully, we never will. It is a cruel and a heartless way to end a human's life. Now, the Romans were experts and masters at it. They didn't invent it. The Persians really came along with the idea of crucifixion. But the Romans were masters at crucifixion. And they used it over and over again. It would have been in the middle 50s when Spartacus had led the rebellion of the slaves in Rome. Rome didn't know how to handle that. They'd never seen. See, Rome was a great empire. And basically by that time it was more of a republic, I guess. But it, it later becomes an empire. And, if some, and something you need to make this government run well, you need a lot of slaves. 
So when they would go out and conquer people, they would take the people back and bring them in as slaves. And you need slaves to do the work. And they had thousands of slaves. Well, Spartacus gets everybody together, all the slaves together, and they lead a revolt. And the Romans really weren't prepared for that. And they're waging war to try to put the revolt down. And Spartacus is doing pretty well. He had over 100,000 men in the, in the revolt. Well, the reason this comes to mind is he was being very successful in the revolt against Rome until he came across a lieutenant commander under General Crassus. His name was Julius Caesar. If ever there was a great military leader for Rome, it was Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar says, I know how to handle this. And so they wage war against Spartacus and the revolted slaves and defeat them. And Spartacus is killed. There's another general, though, Pompey, who is very upset because he didn't get the credit for putting down the slaves. He says, I want some credit for doing this, too. So he rounds up all the slaves he can get and crucifies them, one every 100 feet all the way back to Rome. And when someone travels back to Rome, they're going to see a crucified slave every 100 feet. And Pompey, when he gets back to Rome receives a great deal of glory and praise for what he has done. When Paul uses the word crucified, it's a powerful word. We don't relate to it as well. You see, when Jesus was crucified, he was laid down upon a wooden beam, and there nails through his hands and, and thus tied to his arms tied to the beam, he was to carry the cross up the Via Della Rosa, the narrow, sorrowful way, and there he would hang between heaven and earth, suspended for that period of time. When a person was crucified, they would die of exposure, asphyxiation, and thirst. Through a period of time, the muscles would become paralyzed. And even though the person was capable of inhaling because of the crucifixion and the pressures that it put on the physical body, which I don't understand all those things, he was incapable of exhaling. And it was a terrible way to die. Jesus died. He died this tragic death. But Paul says, we've got to be crucified. When I understand crucified, then I understand more about how not to disgrace grace. Verse 6 says, we know that our old self was crucified. It was put to death. We don't do the old things we used to do. We separated ourselves from the love of and the practice of sin. We crucified it and we put it to death. A sure death. And we're not going to go back to that because it's been put to death. And so when somebody comes along and says a few things to me, even though I might like to say them back, I don't say them. Because I've crucified that kind of way of speech. And even though others come along and they dress the way they dress, whether it be immodestly, provocatively, I don't involve myself in that. Because I've crucified that lifestyle. And even though people come along and they want to do this to me or do that to me, 
I don't return in kind because I've crucified that old way of life. I put it to death. I put myself to death. I went through a spiritual type of crucifixion where I no longer love that kind of lifestyle and I no longer do that kind of thing. Often brothers and sisters in Christ have trouble living the Christian life because they didn't go through the crucifixion. Sometimes brothers and sisters in Christ have difficulty in living Christianity because the old man was never really crucified. The old man was never really put to death. They, in turn, want to continue the old ways. They that are Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. Paul said in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 24, that's why Paul would say, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet I live, and Christ liveth in me. For the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, a crucifixion took place. And here's where the problems come in. And it'll really test us to see whether we are going to disgrace grace. Purity problems come. And the test will come to us, shall I remain pure and clean within my heart and within my life? Will I keep myself physically pure? Will I keep my heart physically pure, my mind physically pure? And that's some of the things that we're going to face. And so we say no to that because we've crucified the old way of life. Priority problems will be a test for us. I don't want to disgrace grace, but I'm running the risk of disgracing grace when I don't put first things first, and I don't prioritize like I should. When I fail to seek the kingdom of God first in my life, and I fail to give God and Christ the allegiance and the devotion that really belong to them, I'm failing in this regard. But I tell you the problem. The real problem will be people problems. That's when you're going to find the real difficult test of grace and whether you've really crucified that old way of living and that old way of person. Because people will come along and they will cause individual conflicts with us and we'll have to deal with those conflicts in the proper way, in the right way. And it'll all determine how much of that old way we crucified. Did we really put it to death? Or does that old way of living still live with us? And we still practice the same things and deal with the same things the same way? Or have we really put the old way of life to death and nailed it down and crucified it? Powerful word. Have we? Or will we disgrace grace and flip back over into the old way of doing things and the old way of loving sin and the old way of practicing sin and disgrace the grace of God? But there's another word in this context. You remember I talked about a scripture and two words. One word is crucifixion. The other word is resurrection. And let me talk a little bit about resurrection here. I wish I knew more about it. I have questions in my mind. I'm thinking about verse 5 here. 
For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You know, when you talk about a resurrection, Romans chapter 6, verse 4, verse 5. Jesus went through death. He went through crucifixion. But he was raised from the dead. He was buried. And he was resurrected. And I wish I knew more about this. And I'm going to just speculate a little bit with you on some of these particular matters because I don't know enough about it. I would like to have known if there was somehow a difference in the resurrected body of Christ, that post-resurrection body. I'd like to know if there's some difference there. You know, there were two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they didn't recognize him. Still, it was a resurrected Christ, but he's walking with them and talking with them, and they did not recognize him. I suppose, I don't know, there might have been something different with regard to the resurrected body of Christ. Or maybe he cloaked himself in such a way that they just didn't recognize who he was. Uh, maybe that was the point of the matter, that they just didn't recognize him. Sometimes Jesus in his resurrected state would just walk through a wall and there he'd be with the apostles. Sometimes he would just appear. And sometimes he would just disappear. And there must have been some kind of difference with regard to the resurrected body of Christ as to that of the physical, mere physical body of Christ. He had the physical body which died. The physical body was buried. That physical body was raised to newness of life, to a new life by the power of God. And I wish I knew more about the resurrected body of Jesus. There's more there than I understand. But there was some difference to it than the purely physical body of Christ before the resurrection. And Paul says in this passage, in a, in a similar way or like that, there's a difference in me because now I've been resurrected. I died a spiritual death, and now I've been raised to walk in newness of life there's a difference in me. Though I've got the same physical body I had before my baptism into Christ, but now there's a difference in my spiritual life. There's a difference in the way in which I live. One day I'm going to be resurrected from the dead. And that's a fact. The resurrection of the dead is just as much a fact as it is a fact that I'm here speaking to you today. And that resurrected body will be a different body. There'll be similarities, I suppose, to the old physical body, but there'll be differences to this new resurrected body. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He mentions it about verse 42. This whole chapter is an amazing discussion about the resurrected body. So is it with the resurrection of the dead? 1 Corinthians 15, 42. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. The it is my physical body. The dishonor is it's put in the grave. It is raised in glory. My spiritual body will come from the grave. My spiritual body will come from the death of the grave. It is sown in weakness, the physical body. It is raised in power, the spiritual body. There'll be some difference between 
I don't know all the answers to that. I don't know all of the uh, technicalities of that particular matter. I would like to, believe me. I think about it, I search about it, I pray about it, but there's only a limited amount of this that I can come to understand and come to know. But I know there's a difference. I know there's a difference between the physical body that is put in the grave and the spiritual body that will be raised from the dead by the power of God one great day. And I wish I knew all the differences, but I just don't. But I know that there is a difference. There's a difference in us spiritually when I've been raised to walk in newness of life. Now, that physical body is still here, and it's the same. But the spiritual body has been changed. There's a big difference to it now. Paul in Colossians chapter 3 tells me something of the significance of that. It's a remarkable passage. If then, verse 1, you have been raised with Christ. That's resurrection. Baptized into Christ. Raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Go on down there to verse 5. He expects a lot out of my life now, my new resurrected life, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming, verse 6. God expects my resurrected spiritual body to be different from the body, that dead soul that went into that water and now came up out of that water, a living soul. It's to be different. It now lives for Christ. It now puts to death all the immorality that's out there. It is the kind of life that God expects me to live. A new body, a new life, and a new expectation. That now I have been forgiven of my sins, and I await eternal life in the life to come. Big difference between what I was then and what I am now. There's a dip because there was a resurrection. When I understand about the passage of Scripture, and I understand about the crucifixion, and I understand about the resurrection, the resurrection of Christ and my own resurrection to walk in newness of life, it will help me not to disgrace grace. When I hear about everyday sins, now I will more easily say no to them. Because I don't want to disgrace grace. Because I know the sin of homosexuality is not gay. It's sin. Fornication is not making love. It is sin before God. Adultery is not having an affair. It is a sexual immorality. Gambling is not gaming. It is organized stealing from another person. Drunkenness is not just a sickness. It is a choice that I make, and in turn guilty of sin before God. And now I'm not going to be committing those things because I don't want to disgrace grace. I want to understand Romans 6, 1 through 11. And I want to understand what he means by crucifixion. How that I put it to death, man, I nailed it down, and it is gone from my life. And I want to understand about resurrection, 
My spiritual soul is now alive spiritually, whereas before it was dead. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus gives us a verse there that will help me not disgrace grace. The verse, verse 24, you and I have read it a lot. You ought to mark it in the pages of your Bible. Then Jesus told his disciples, that's me, I'm a disciple that belongs to the Lord. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. That's crucifixion. Deny yourself and put it to death. And take up his cross and follow me. That's resurrection. That's living a new life in Christ Jesus. These two great words will help me and keep me from disgracing the grace of God, crucifixion, and resurrection. If you've never been obedient to the gospel of Christ, I urge you to do it today. I urge you to repent of sin and become a child of God by confessing faith and by being baptized into Christ in the New Testament way. Paul says we were baptized. Be baptized today. And I urge you to do it now. Won't you come? While together we stand and while